Good morning. I want to wel- welcome you again back and uh, invite you to find your seat. <clears throat> and if you have your Bibles, open up to James chapter, James chapter 1. And uh, you can follow along in the bulletin if you don't have your Bible with you. It should be on the inside of your bulletin. James chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. Just two weeks ago, we started a new series in the book of James. And um, I'm really excited about this book. Let me, let me read the text and then we'll get, we'll get started here. James 1, 9 to 12 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning those of humble circumstances would exalt would boast in their exaltation. Those who are wealthy and rich and, and, and have power and influence would boast in their humiliation. God, I pray that you would work in us this morning a perseverance through trial, a steadfastness. No matter what we face, no matter what trial we find ourselves in, being poor or rich, or anything else, that we, we would be people, men, women, young adults who persevere, we push through, we endure. God, for your name's sake and your glory, God, work this in us. Make us these kinds of people. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of James is, um, I like to, it's, it's, it gives us a portrait of what living faith looks like. It shows us what a person of faith is like, what they look like, how they live. Uh, In James chapter 2, there's this interesting dialogue the writer of James gives us between two people. One person that claims to have faith, but doesn't show it by the way he lives, and somebody else who does have a living faith and shows it. And the one says to the other, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. And that's really the essence of, I think, the major theme of the book of James is that it gives us a picture of what living faith looks like, of what a lively, alive faith in the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. And quite frankly, the way the book starts off, it's almost like a... It's almost like a cold shower or um, a gracious slap in the face because he, the writer James, the Holy Spirit, wants to press in upon us trials, difficulties right off the bat. I mean, right, right after he introduces himself, James, the author of the book, says this, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. It's like a cold chair. It wakes us up. He immediately wants to press the issue of trials. 
Not only, not just that we will go through them, but I think we've seen from the last couple of messages, and we will again today, the necessity of trials for the testing of our faith. So as Peter says, it will be shown to be true, pure gold, and we will receive the final prize when Jesus returns. The necessity of trials in God's program for us in life so that we become the kind of men and women that he wants to form us into. So two weeks ago, we saw that a living faith counts it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. A living faith sees trials. This this isn't all that we do, right? We do pray. We do seek God. But one thing we do is when trials come our way or when we are walking down the road and one meets us on the road, we count it joy because we know God is at work. Because we know God is producing steadfastness in us and he wants to bring us to this place of being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 4. That was two weeks ago. Last week, Reed touched on and talked about our need for wisdom. Right? One thing we lack often in trials is wisdom. To know what to do. To know what steps to take. To know what to say in that difficult conversation. So we are to come to God And ask him with faith, with no doubting, with faith for wisdom as we are walking in the midst of trials. And God is generous and gives wisdom. And this week we see that a living faith perseveres under trial. A living faith, this this kind of faith we want to have, right? Faith without works is dead, so so a living faith, if it's not living, it's a dead faith. A living faith, however, perseveres under trial. And I just feel like I need to clarify this because I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. It doesn't mean we don't pray or we don't seek God's deliverance or we don't seek help to get out of trials or to be released from the pressure of trials. There's just other things that James wants to press in upon us. Counting it joy, asking God for wisdom in the midst of, and then persevering under trials. Two weeks ago, I said the first question we ask is, why when we face a trial? Luke apparently had had a different one that he asked first. I get it. I totally understand. How do I get out of this? Immediately, we ask why or how can I get out of this situation as quickly as possible? And neither one of those are addressed here. Neither one of those are addressed. We want to be people who persevere under trial. I was thinking as we were worshiping, <clears throat> and I believe God is totally sovereign. I believe, he is, I believe God works all of his providential ways for his glory and for, his, for the good of his people. And I was just thinking why, it just dawned on me why we're going through the book of James now. Not because I know specific things that popped into my mind, but it's because We all go through trials. Maybe you've come out of a deep trial. And the whole time you just thought, how do I get this big, heavy burden off my back? And you didn't see God in the midst of it. Or you're walking in the midst of a trial right now and you don't see God in the midst of it. Or no doubt, if you live long enough, you will walk through challenging things. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see God in the midst of our difficulties.
trials and tests of faith are necessary. They are necessary. A Syrian pastor, I won't give his name, I don't know if I could pronounce it right anyways, but Alyssa Reed and Luke and a group of others that went to the Middle East met him about six years ago while they were in Syria. He was featured in a CBN article online, uh, I think it was maybe the 10th or so, so a few days ago. Listen to what he said. He's in, he's in the city of Aleppo. Aleppo is absolutely decimated. It's like a graveyard because of civil war, the, the Syrian government, as well as ISIS. Listen to what this amazing, faithful pastor says. They're like, why don't you get out? Why don't you leave? Here's what he said. If the Christian faith is not tested, we will not see how real it is and how powerful it is. The power of the Christian faith always comes during the test. And how are we going to be tested? By fire. And the fire is all the time, all over the community. So we have many challenges. And today I believe that our Christian faith is challenged as well. He says, how is a Christian faith shown to be as powerful and strong as, as it is unless it's in the midst of tests and trials? Verse 12 of our passage this morning says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Though you and I do not face the kinds of trials that believers are facing in Aleppo, Syria, or Afghanistan, or lots of other places in the world, we do have tests of faith. And in some ways, the trials we face may be more dangerous because of the subtlety of them. I think we might see that from this passage, what James points out to us as a trial that we might not often think is a trial. So the call from our text this morning is persevering under trial. The li- a living faith perseveres under trial. To persevere means to endure, or means to remain steadfast. That's what our passage says, the ESV pass, uh, text says. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is urging Christians to look at all the people that have come before us, these faithful believers in God and in Jesus Christ. And he says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings closely And let us run the race with endurance. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's an endurance race. It's more like a marathon than the 100-meter dash. So a living faith perseveres under trial. It endures. It keeps going. It remains steadfast. How? I have four things I want to point out from our passage. A living faith perseveres under trial first by learning to boast in God's grace regardless of circumstances. By learning to boast in God's grace regardless of circumstances, the circumstances we presently find ourselves in. Verses 9 to 11 show us that being poor or rich, low or high, but what I mean is like a low position in, in, in culture and in life or a high position, both of these are trials. Both of these are tests of faith. 
They both are tests of faith revealing what we truly treasure. By being poor, being a nobody, you might say, being somebody who is low, doesn't have much influence, doesn't have any power or prestige in a worldly sense, no notoriety, there's no prospects of fame and fortune at all. This, of course, is a trial. The temptation is there to grasp for what you don't have and to be eaten up with cancerous envy at what others have. Isn't that a trial? Has that, has, have you ever faced that before? I know that I have. I want what others have. The prestige, the power, the money, the things. These are trials we face. Being poor, not being prestigious or powerful is a temptation or there's a temptation to be jealous at the influence and opportunities that others enjoy. Now, we probably agree with that and think that's obvious. Being poor is a great trial. But did you know that being wealthy and having position and power, lots of influence, this is also a great trial. It's also a test of one's faith. Now, let's be clear. The Bible never, ever condemns having an abundance of wealth in itself. Ever. It never does. Right? It does, however, give serious warning about the dangerous traps that can ensnare the rich and those in in positions of power. And I think we see this even all around us. I think we've noticed this in our culture. It's not hard to see. But for instance, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, do not love money. Don't love money. Don't worship money. Don't grab for money. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The, the prosperity preachers that urge people to go after this are leading them to their ruin. It's not good. Beware of the love of money, for it is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but a love of money, a lusting after money and things and power. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Paul goes on to say he warns the rich or he he urges them and exhorts them not to trust in their riches. Same chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, this is where John tells those his listeners to not love the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the heart, the lust of the eyes, and then this next part, the pride in possessions. The pride in possessions. These are from the world, not from the Father. So we see, it all, we see this all the time. For instance, the world of politics. A man or woman runs for office with great intentions, maybe even a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And they, all of a sudden they end up in this vortex of like this power structure and it changes them. 
where people come into wealth and it changes them. It is easy, and I know this temptation too, it is so easy to become enamored with the wonderful things that money can do for us and get our eyes off of the treasure that is our God. So James wants to address, or he does address in our passage, both the rich and the poor. And he gives them... um, He gives them instruction as to how they can be those who persevere under the trials of their present circumstances. Let's see what he says. First to the poor, verse 9, he says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Doesn't that sound strange? He's lowly. He doesn't have anything. He's lowly. Boast in his exaltation? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. To boast means to glory or to exult in or to be thrilled with. If you hear what James is saying, if you find yourself strapped for cash or you have no power, you have no prestige, none of it, very little influence in this world, you are being commanded to boast in your exaltation. We better find out what this means because that sounds very strange. What does that mean? To be a lowly brother means to be, certainly I think most directly means to be poor materially, but also means to have, be of humble circumstances, not really a whole lot of influence other than those just around you. No power, no prestige, no prospects for fame or money coming your way. None of it. And James says, if you find yourself right there, boast. Glory, boast, lowly brother, in your exaltation. In fact, the word boast is the word that's emphasized in this sentence. This sentence could be rewritten this way. Boast, lowly brother, in your exaltation. And how did this lowly brother, how did he get such a high position? Because it means boast in your height or in your high position. You've been exalted to some great place. How did he get there? What does it mean? It means that in Christ, by sheer grace, he has been given all the riches of God himself. Lowly brother, boast in your exaltation. God has been open-handed and generous to you. He has given you his greatest treasure in his son, Jesus Christ. The riches of God's grace is lavished upon you. Do you know that? Do you? Ephesians 1, that's what Paul says. His grace has been lavished upon us in the beloved or in Jesus Christ. The God of the universe has favor upon you. He loves you. His grace has been shed abroad upon you. You have a high place. You have been exalted by a gift of God's sheer grace. Listen to what Ephesians 2.6 says. It says, For when we were dead in our sins, 
He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up and seated us in heavenly places in Christ. You cannot get higher than that. You may not own Trump Tower. You may not be the CEO of of a company. You may have no chance of ever being one. But you have been exalted by the God of the universe to the heights of heaven. And his grace has been lavished upon you. We sing a song. uh, It's been a little while since we sang it. If grace were an ocean, we would be, what does it say? Drowning? Sinking. Yes. If your grace, O God, was an ocean, we we would be sinking. We would be just, I mean, it's just, Surrounded. We are, we are neck deep, even over our heads, in the grace of God. So ultimately, the poor man, the man of no power, no riches, is to boast in the riches of God's grace that grants him or her this high position in Christ. This incredibly high position position in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian and you find yourself in low circumstances, I mean, you really may. I mean, you you really are in low circumstances. You're not even sure exactly how you're going to make your rent payment or mortgage payment next month. It matters that, right, that you get help to do that. But first, you need to know and you need to boast in your exalted position in Christ. You've been lifted up to the heights of heaven. So if you're poor and don't have much, turn your attention to the grace of God and boast. Now you've got to remember, well, maybe, maybe we haven't talked about this, but James is writing to largely Jewish Christians that have been scattered and that are experiencing hardships. This is not just some theory. He's not just saying like pie in the sky, you know, all you Christians that really got everything together. Hey, if you ever happen to. No, no, no. He's talking to people that are going through great hardship. And he has these words to say to them. So the poor are to boast in their exaltation. Verses 10 and 11 address the rich though. And this is really strange. This is even more more strange than the encouragement or the exhortation to the poor. Verse 10 says, And the rich should boast in his humiliation. Boast in his humiliation. That seems like a very strange statement. But look at James's argument. Look at the next phrase. Let the rich man boast in his humiliation because... You see that word because? Because like the flower of the grass, he is going to fade away. Like the flower of the grass, he is going to fade away. There is nothing immortal about the rich and wealthy and influential and powerful person. Nothing at all. They're going to fade away like everyone else. Right? Right? He or she, this rich man or woman, is cut from the same cloth as everyone else. 
This life is temporary, eternity is long. What matters is the riches of God's grace, not earthly possessions, not prestige, not power, ultimately. Obviously, we can do great good with some of those things here. But what ultimately ultimately matters is the riches of God's grace. The rich are going to die just like everyone else. Did you know that? makes sense, doesn't it? That's what what James is saying. Let the rich man boast in his humiliation. His days are number two. He's going to be buried in the dirt just like the rest of us. And he should boast in it. That's a, we're going to get to that in a minute. Verse 11 amplifies this point with a great analogy for those in the first century Middle East. And I think it's also a good analogy for 21st century Iowans. Here's what verse 11 says. <clears throat> Still talking to the rich. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I think it's the NIV, or no, it might be the New American Standard or NIV, I can't remember, says in the, in, as he goes about his business. So the rich man that God has blessed with industry and ingenuity and entrepreneurship or whatever and makes money, right? he's going to fade away, he's going to perish in the midst of that very thing that has helped him accumulate wealth. And he gives this picture of a flower and scorching heat bearing down on a flower. I think NIV says scorching wind. You guys know like those really, really, really hot, dry, windy days here in Iowa? That's what I imagine. You know how it's really windy here all the time? And sometimes the heat and the wind, it's like the, 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 the wind just makes it like 20 degrees warmer. It's, that's what I imagine. This scorching Hot wind bearing down on these wildflowers in a grassy field and it scorches them and they perish, they fade away. The rich man, that's what's going to happen to him and everybody else too. Have you ever for any length of time just considered your own mortality? Jonathan Edwards, uh, he resolved, he made lots of resolutions. He resolved to think every day about his death. I think that sounds a little dark, but I, I think we ought to do that some. Have you ever thought for any length of time about your own mortality, that life is short, eternity is long, and I'm going to die someday? It is a humbling thing and a good thing to do. So the rich are to boast in their humiliation, in their own mortality. I don't think James is, I don't think he's addressing evil rich people here. I I just don't. I think he says some things later about some specific wealthy people that were doing some shenanigans, but I don't think he's doing that here. I think he's talking to rich believers Boast in your humiliation. You are made of dirt. You're made of dust. 
we are all made of dust. We came from dust and we are going to return to dust. Now, of course, Jesus is going to come and raise us again, but that's another message, okay? Every one of us, rich and poor, unless we outlive the return of Christ, will be buried in the ground, will die. This life is temporary. And so the wealthy are just to know, don't put your hope in the things you have here and the money you can hold in your hands and the money you have in your bank account or your retirement or anything like that because life is temporary. This life is temporary. So boast in God's grace regardless of your present circumstances. And I don't know how we can even begin to do this unless we keep the cross of Jesus Christ central. At the foot of the cross, at the foot of the cross, the ground is totally level. There is no pristine seat for the wealthy and some dirty spot for the poor, right? It, we, we all come and we sit on the ground before the cross and we receive God's mercy and God's grace. In Christ, the poor are exalted, the rich are brought low, all are eternally rich in Christ. And every person, rich or poor, here today, you are invited to enter into the, to an experience of the riches of Christ right now. So how does a living faith persevere under trial? By boasting, regardless of our present circumstances. Next, by defining blessedness on God's terms. By defining what it means to be blessed on God's terms. Verse 12 says this, blessed is the man. Do you know what the word blessed means? You guys know what the word blessed means? Happy. Happy is the man. In fact, this, the first, this verse, verse 12, almost reads like the Beatitudes, right? The Matthew 5, like 3 to 12 or something. Blessed is the poor spirit. Blessed are those who show mercy. Blessed. James is saying, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. And then what it says next is amazing. See, we might think the man is blessed who is savvy enough to wiggle his way out of trials. That man's blessed. That's not what James says here. Blessed is the man who has enough wisdom. Oh, here we go. Last week, you could twist last week's and put it here. Who has enough wisdom to foresee trials and get out of the way of them. That's not what James says. Blessed is the man who has enough faith to live a trial-free life. That's not what it says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Remember the, the marathon? Keeps going. Perseveres. Endures trial. That man is blessed. That man is blessed. That woman is blessed. Remember, it is not a question of if we will go through trials, but when we go through trials. That's what James says back in verse 2 of the same chapter. 
the words remain steadfast is in the present continual tense. In other words, this man or woman is steadfast and keeps being steadfast. Right? They are enduring. They are remaining steadfast. They remain steadfast. They are patiently enduring the difficulties they find themselves in, this man or woman. We don't do this perfectly, right? We have moments, sometimes days, where we are just murmuring and griping about our trials. We don't do this perfectly. However, the trajectory of our lives should be one of enduring trials patiently, persevering through them, remaining steadfast in them, continuing to walk with Jesus. It's like that old song. I think it's back from probably like the 80s or something. I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. This man is blessed. This man is happy because God is in the midst of his pain and difficulty or her pain and difficulty. God meets with us powerfully in the midst of our trials as we persevere in them. And there's great blessing. I urge you this morning, open the eyes of faith and see God right now. In the midst of your poverty or your riches or any other challenge you're facing, open your eyes and see by faith, that God is at work right now. Charles Spurgeon, there's a devotional of his writings and sayings and sermons, partial parts of his sermons called Morning and Evening. So there's one in the morning, one in the evening. On February 12th, the morning... Uh, the morning devotional, here's something that Spurgeon said. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles. The spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes more room for consolation. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. So how does living faith persevere? By defining blessedness on God's terms and not our own. But there's more. Living faith perseveres under trials by looking to the eternal reward. By looking to the eternal reward. Verse 12 continues, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This man who endures trials, if he remains steadfast, he's going to receive the crown of life. There is, hope that, that, there is hope that we can have that our trials are not in vain and they will not go on forever. But they do have purpose in this life and is to prepare us to receive a crown.
I think what James is pointing to is the reward that we will receive when Jesus comes back. It's meant to be an incredible incentive for you and I to be steadfast. It really is. I mean, think about it. Later in the book of James, James says, your life is a vapor. It is so short in the light of eternity. But we live as though this, sometimes, uh, we live as though this is it. This is it. But if God, by his grace, could just open up our eyes and see, wow, eternity is long. This life is short. It matters how I live now that I truly have a living faith. That God wants to prepare me for that, for that day when I'm going to see Christ face to face. Right before him at the judgment throne. This is meant to be an incentive to remain steadfast. To be strong, to endure. It's, it, I actually think of it this way. The, the power of hope is meant to, of our, of our future hope in Christ, is meant to reach back into the present and empower us to live through anything now because of that great and powerful and glorious hope. Paul says the, um, the, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I know some people here are going through deep and torturous difficulties. I pray that God would help and God that, that God would rescue. But right now, you need to see the reward that awaits you when Christ comes again. Paul speaks of this. It's spoken of often in the Bible, in the New Testament especially. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8 and 9. You probably have heard these words before. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. On that day. On the day of when Christ, well, I think, it's, I think it means on the day of judgment. When we stand before Christ, and as it says in Matthew 25, he, Jesus Christ is going to sit on his judgment seat. He's going to separate the He's going to gather the nations and separate them into groups figuratively of, of sheep and of goats. And he's going to turn to the sheep. And he's going to say, blessed are you. You are blessed. And then he says, enter into the joy of your master. He's going to crown us. He's going to say, come on in. The fight's over. Come on in. Eternal life in the presence of Jesus. And he's going to turn to the other group. He's going to say, depart from me. We need to look to the eternal reward. <clears throat> I think there may have been a time when Christians, churches, ministers, whatever, overemphasized only heaven, only the future. I do not see that as our problem in our day now. 
I see probably a bigger problem is that we so de-emphasize that, that we do not receive the power and the strength that the New Testament wants to give us as we look forward to the reward. Peter, speaking to elders and leaders in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5, says almost the same thing. He encourages them to serve faithfully. And then in verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Crown. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2, speaking to the church at Smyrna, says something so similar to James. I mean, almost word for word, part of it. Revelation 2, verse 10 says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The king of the universe is going to put a crown on our heads. That is so amazing. That is breathtakingly awesome. And it's amazing, right? Paul says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, people that compete in games, they compete for, for a, a wreath or a, a crown kind of thing that perishes. But we, for one, that never perishes. You are going to be crowned by the king of the universe. I think the crown points to final victory. Final victory from sin and every trial. They will all be gone forever. (laughs) 80 years, vapor life, and then eternity, paradise. Points to final victory over sin and every trial and eternal gladness. Last point. How does a living faith persevere under trials? By keeping the main thing, the main thing. What do I mean by that? Verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Not those who grew up in a Christian home, or those who are trying by their own willpower and gritting their teeth to get through difficulties. He's promised to those who love him. Not those who prayed a prayer five years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Not even those who've been baptized. Not those who show up at church. Okay, showing up at church is good. Baptism is great. Making a commitment to Jesus is great. But to those who love him. This is all promised to those who love God. We sang earlier, and there's this line, something about adoring God. Adoring Him. Loving Him. I mean, having adoration for Him. I mean, having affections that, that love Him, that are moved toward Him. Now, let's face it. For those who do not know Jesus, or for those who have not been born again, this is the most unnatural thing. There aren't those emotions and affections. Because Romans 8 says there's enmity in the heart of someone who has not been born again. 
But for those who've been born again, born by the Spirit, God's Spirit is put inside of us. God has put a seed in us. He is our Father now. Right? I am a child of God. I praise the Lord. The most natural thing, we don't do this perfectly, but the most natural thing is, man, my heart is, I love him. I love him. Jesus said in Mark 12, the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the main thing. In John chapter 21, Jesus asks Peter three times. You know the question he asks him? Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Take care of my people. Three times. And I asked the question, do you love God? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, you, I mean is your, has, has your heart been changed? Do you know that there's, something's happened in you because you love him? And even if you're like a tough guy and you're like, I'm not really that emotional, baloney. <clears throat> when God's spirit is put inside of you, it says the spirit inside of us cries out, Abba, Father. Do you love him? That's the motivation for why we endure, how we endure. If you're in here and you might say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I do. I mean, if I were to ask you, parents, do you love your children? Do you love your son, your daughter, all of your kids? Without a doubt, you'd say, of course I, hopefully, of course I do. Yes, I'm, I'm, man, I'm, my heart is bursting with love for them. For some reason, we kind of say, well, loving God's different. Well, it, it is in a glorious way because he's God. He's not a person. I mean, he's, he's the ultimate being, but, but there should be that affection for God. First John 4 says, it, it tells us very clearly, we can only love God when we see how he has first loved us. Right? I think it's First uh, John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So I ask you, do you love God? And then they ask again, do you know his love for you that he's shown in Christ? I'm not saying, can you give me a 30-second explanation of the gospel? I'm saying, do you know his love for you? I mean, has it come down upon you? I mean, do you, do, do, you, do you know the God of the universe cares for you and is kind towards you and is gracious towards you and he sent Jesus down to earth to bear your penalty on the cross and take your sins to the cross and take your real guilt and put it on himself as though it were his? As though he were the guilty sinner on the cross? 1 John 4 10 says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins or a propitiation for our sins. 
look to Christ. You wonder, I don't know if I love God. I don't know if he loves me. Look to Jesus on the cross. You will not get a more powerful demonstration from God. He, he has said, I love you. He, has, he said to, to the whole world, all can come because I poured out my love upon the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We need our hearts. We need to keep our hearts in the love of God and be motivated by love for God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So, a living faith perseveres under trial. A living faith keeps going. A living faith perseveres because we know and we're learning to, bur- to boast in God's grace no matter what we presently are facing. By defining blessedness on God's terms, by looking to the eternal reward, and by, by focusing on the main thing, by keeping the main thing the main thing. Love for God. Let's not get bogged down with all these outward religious things and our hearts be far from God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I, I, have, I have no authority up here other than that I speak what your word is saying. So God, I pray that your spirit would take the words that I said and insofar as they are true, they would be planted on the souls of every one of us here. May we be men and women and raising up the next generation to be steadfast, immovable, persevering difficulties and trials. For the sake of your name and for our eternal joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.